Well, good morning. I see a few faces we haven't seen in a while. I'm glad we've got some health coming here and some old friends visiting us. So for some of you who may not be aware, we're working our way through Luke. Um, we sort of started with the Advent season, not exactly going through Luke, but going through um, some of the people who were involved in the Christmas story, which included some of the early part of Luke. And then we've, we've jumped ahead. And in a way, we missed the introduction. I want to go back to that just briefly here. Um, so in the very early verses of, of Luke, Luke introduces his audience and his purpose, why, why he's writing this letter. And I think it's really important for us to understand what his purpose is so that we can rightly interpret what we read. And so he says, <clears throat> he was talking about how other people have tried to, to record the events of Jesus' life. And he said, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke is writing this account of things that he's researched. He was a doctor, he was thoughtful, he researched things carefully, and it's what he's studied about Jesus. And he's writing it to this guy named Theophilus, so that he can know for certain that what he's been taught about Jesus is true. That, that's his goal. He, he's explaining this to Theophilus. And Theophilus, literally, if you translated it from the Greek, it means God lover. And, and so we don't know for sure if it was actually a guy who happened to have the name God lover, or whether he's really writing it to people who love God, who, who are investigating um, Jesus and wanting to know more. Um, but, but the bottom line is that, that Luke is going to be a logical presentation of information about Jesus' life structured in a way that's going to convince us um, of who he is, convince us about who he is. And so Luke begins talking about these supernatural events around Jesus' birth, which we'll remember from the Christmas story, you know, the angels appearing to, to the shepherds and God appearing even before that to, the, to this virgin, Mary, and, and the virgin birth, and all these things where, um, you know, it, Jesus is clearly has a supernatural beginning. Um, and then we talked, he, he, he jumped to Jesus' baptism, which in human terms was, was really a mountaintop experience for Jesus, but also a real manifestation of, of God, where we have God the Father speaking from heaven, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. We have God the Son being baptized, and God the Holy Spirit descending as a dove onto, onto Jesus. So again, really declaring Jesus as divine, but at the same time having a, a little different relationship than we think of, because, I mean, how can the Holy Spirit fill himself, in a sense? You know, so Jesus is fully man and fully God. And, and Luke goes on to, to further establish that Jesus is fully man by presenting his genealogy and showing that you can follow Jesus' bloodline all the way back to Adam. And in fact, there's some pretty unsavory characters in it. Um, so Jesus fully embraced humanity. He, he fully became part of the human family. So now following this this mountaintop experience of baptism, Jesus is led into a physical wilderness, and I, I would argue a spiritual wilderness, and he undergoes 40 days of not eating, 40 days of suffering, and then along comes the devil to tempt Jesus. And as we see, Jesus was tempted 
the same ways we are, the same kinds of things that we're tempted, the, the same big categories. He's tempted to doubt God. You know, does God really care about me? He's brought me out into this desert. Will he provide for me? Um, he's tempted to take material matters into his own hands rather than wait for God to, to, to make stones into bread to care for his needs rather than wait for God to meet his needs. Um, he's, he's tempted to put things ahead of obeying God, of, of jumping to the end point, taking the easy path rather than, than trusting God and walking in the path that he has. Um, Jesus endured these temptations that we fail at. Every one of us fails at those things. Every one of us falls into sin. But Jesus emerged victorious. He didn't fall prey to any of those temptations. So now we see Jesus as this sinless man, as this spotless lamb, as this suitable sacrifice for sin. And today Luke continues introducing us to Jesus, and he's going to introduce us to Jesus as the promised Messiah. Um, and he does this in the context of Jesus' return to his hometown. He's been ministering in Galilee for a short while. You'll remember he turned water into wine at a wedding in Galilee. And there was also a, a government official who came to him and said his son was sick and Jesus healed his son. Um, so there's a buzz about Jesus now. People have heard about him. There's, the word is spreading. Hey, this Jesus, he is really something. You know, there, he, he speaks eloquently and, and he's speaking amazing things and we're seeing him do amazing things. And around that buzz, he goes home to, to Nazareth, to, to his hometown. And Luke picks up, he says, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So in the midst of this kind of excited buzz about, Hey, Jesus, you know, he's really something. He's doing great things. Jesus shows up at his home synagogue and he reads from Isaiah 61, which is right in the middle of an extended passage about the Messiah, extended messianic portion um, about, with a lot of references about God establishing his kingdom. And after reading it, Jesus sits down and says, that's me. I'm that guy. And that message might not thrill us so much because we know he's the Messiah, but, but it really should. And, and it sent a tingle down the spine of the people who were listening. The, the people of Israel have been waiting for hundreds of years for this Messiah to come. You know, for 400 years, God had been silent. And, and Israel was struggling for existence. They had all these different empires come through and overrun them, and they were oppressed. And, and now they had the Romans there who were putting you know, their heavy thumb on them with taxation and, and bringing in heathen activities contrary to their faith. And to the Hebrew hearers 
who would have heard this, there would have been this eternal, yes, at last, this is the day we've been waiting for. Could this really be true? There have been a number of false messiahs who'd come through. So there would have been some skepticism, but they would have wanted, could he really be the one? Does he have the right credentials? Did, does he fulfill the prophecies? And Luke uses this passage in Isaiah to say, look, here are the defining characteristics of the Messiah. Isaiah lays out a list of things that the Messiah should do. And then Luke goes on in chapter 4 and elsewhere in his gospel to, to check those boxes and say, look, Jesus did these things. Um, some of the check marks he gives right away, some we have to look further on. And some don't come exactly in the way the Israelites might have been thinking, but they're true nonetheless. In fact, they probably had a greater impact than the way the Israelites would have liked them to be. So, let, so let's look at those. What are the characteristics that this Messiah was supposed to have? So to begin with, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And Luke has already made this strong case that the spirit of the Lord is on Jesus in a powerful way. I mean, he told how the spirit descended like a dove at baptism. And then he reports Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness. So, you know, he was full of the spirit. It was obvious he went out to be tempted. And then when he returns, it says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report went throughout all the surrounding town. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus came back out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the people who saw him and heard him said, there's something about this guy. You know, they, they were talking about him. They were glorifying him. They saw the power of the Holy Spirit on him. There was no denying that the Spirit was on him. Um, you know, this new rabbi just overflows the Spirit of God. And he has this sense of authority in what he says and what he does. And miraculous things are happening around him. For us living today, you know, we, we might have said, gee, we wish we could have seen Jesus in person. We, we could have heard him preach. If we could have watched him do a miracle, it would have been so much easier for us to believe. Um, but the first, def first century Israelites were definitely excited by the power of the Spirit that they saw in him. But, as we'll see, they also had opportunity to doubt. That even though they saw these things, they still doubted. The passage in Isaiah continues to describe the Messiah speaking of things that could be references to release from demonic oppression. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And immediately after his visit to the synagogue in Galilee, um, Luke checks that box as well. He talks about another visit of Jesus to a different Galilean synagogue. And he says, And he went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. Reports about him went out to every place in the surrounding region. So the Messiah was to set at liberty 
those who were oppressed. And here's Jesus acting with authority and the power of the Holy Spirit, freeing this man from demonic oppression. Now, there were exorcists in those days. There were people who tried to drive out demons and apparently did so with some success. But the people were amazed at the way Jesus did this, the authority that he, he spoke and the way the demons came out. Um, Jesus was something special. He was something different. And the demons recognized him as well. This demon proclaimed, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now you can never trust a demon or the devil to speak the truth because he's the father of lies. But in this case, he used the truth to try to needle at Jesus. He knew that Jesus didn't want that announced to the public. Um, But this demon confirmed Jesus is the Messiah. And while I've made the case that this liberty for the captives and for those who are oppressed refers to people oppressed by demons. Um, from our vantage point in history, I'd say it goes far beyond that. It's likely that the Jewish leaders expected, or the Jewish hearers would have expected that Isaiah's prophecy was talking about freedom from Rome and the long succession of other empires that had oppressed Israel, that had pushed them down. And we know that Jesus never spoke out against Rome and in fact encouraged submission to the authorities. But I think God speaking through Isaiah had a different, a more important liberty in mind. And that is liberty from sin. Delivering us from our bondage so that we can actually choose righteousness. Paul says in Romans 6, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So outside of Christ, we as humans can't help but sin. And even our very best efforts are tainted. God says our best deeds are like filthy rags. Even when I do something good, I'm quick to pat myself on the back and say, wow, that was, that was, that was pretty good, Ken. That was okay. You know, and, and pride slips in. Or you know, I take credit for something that God did, try to apply it to myself. Everything that I do is tainted by sin. We're slaves to it. We're captive to it. But Jesus the Messiah has come to set us free. And, and we still struggle with our sinful nature even when we've given ourselves to Christ. But it doesn't hold absolute power over us. We have the freedom from the penalty of it and walking by the Spirit. We can, in fact, actually obey God and not Satan. So there is this liberty from the oppression of sin. So the Messiah is moving in the power of the Holy Spirit and he's bringing deliverance to people in various ways. Isaiah also says that the Messiah would do acts of healing like recovery of sight to the blind. And Luke again, reading further down in chapter 4, checks that box in his account as well. He says, and he arose, Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. He stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Now, 
doesn't say directly in there that he healed anybody who was blind, but we certainly know reading further on in Luke and other Gospels, Jesus healed plenty of people who were blind. The people marveled at his healings. But, but just like we saw that the deliverance from demonic oppression wasn't, that there was more to Jesus' deliverance than that, there's more to Jesus' restoring sight than just restoring physical sight. After Jesus healed the man who was born blind in Luke 9, it says, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So Jesus transitions from physical blindness to spiritual blindness, opening our eyes in faith to see who he really is. And that's the recovery of sight for the blind that Isaiah is referring to as a qualification of the Messiah. Jesus points out that those who see physically can be completely blind spiritually. And some who thought they had great spiritual insight, like the Pharisees, were in fact blind to the truth. All of us are blind to the truth until the Spirit of God opens our eyes. Looping back towards the beginning of the passage quoted by Jesus, again from Isaiah, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. In the Jewish mindset, that likely meant that Jesus would eliminate poverty. Um, that he would address the physical needs of the poor. Perhaps he would cut off this oppressive taxation from Rome. But Jesus didn't do that, but he proclaimed good news to the spiritually poor. In Matthew, Jesus taught, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As human beings, we are spiritually poor. In fact, We're destitute. We have nothing of value that we can offer to God. Again, he describes our best deeds as filthy rags. Our best deeds are repulsive to God. But the good news is that those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize that they have nothing to bring to God, who come to him with empty hands, that have no way to pay for it, but coming by faith alone, those people can receive the kingdom of heaven as a gift from the Lord Jesus. Through his shed blood, spiritually destitute people can be adopted into the royal family of God and be co-heirs of the eternal riches of heaven along with Jesus. That's good news for the poor. That is real good news for the poor. Jesus concluded his reading from Isaiah with the words, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I don't think this is talking about a literal 12-month year, but it's a period of time for mankind where mankind can experience God's favor. And now, 2,000 years later, we are still in that year of the Lord's favor. God is still mercifully extending the gift of salvation to us, of rescue from the judgment that we rightly deserve. He's offering us the gift of Christ's righteousness. But the day is coming when that door will be closed. When God will pronounce judgment on those who persist in rebelling against him. And you know me, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher, but that's the reality. We're enjoying the Lord's favor right now. 
but it's not forever. Um, and we don't want to miss the opportunity. Will, will we heed this evidence that Luke has provided of who the, the Messiah is, that Jesus is the Messiah? Will we respond to the call of the Holy Spirit? That's the question for us. So what about the people who heard Jesus that day in the synagogue of Nazareth? How did they respond? Luke says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? So they were speaking well of him and saying, Wow, that was a great sermon. His teaching was so clear. He speaks so well. He's really gifted. I, I love sermons about the Messiah. It makes me feel so hopeful. And then they kind of did a double take and say, Wait a minute. What did he say? Did he say he's the Messiah? Really? Oh, that could never be. I mean, we don't, this, this is Jesus. You know, the Galileans may be excited about him. They don't know him the way we know him. I mean, he's the son of Mary and Joseph, and we remember that story, right? Yeah, the rush marriage to cover up and, and all that. And yeah, we know about him. And, and we watched him grow up. I mean, he played ball with the kids. He, he was a nice guy and all, but he's no Messiah. He, he's just a regular guy like the rest of us. <clears throat> and Jesus apparently sensed what was going on. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a widow or to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So some would say Jesus went from preaching to meddling here. He went from telling nice church people what they wanted to hear to a message that they didn't want. And in turn, they went from all speaking well of him and marveling at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth in verse 22 to a lynch mob that tried literally to throw him over the cliff by verse 28. So I'd say that was, that was really high-impact preaching. God, Jesus really got a response from his listeners, but it wasn't the response that most of us preachers want. Um, Jesus was more fearless than I am. So what got them so upset? I mean, on the face of it, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. Um, you know, he accused them of not respecting their hometown boy. Well, you know, that's not death worthy. And then he told two stories from the Old Testament. There's nothing in that worthy of death. But it was the point of his story that made them furious. See, in their minds, they were God's chosen people. They, they were the good guys, the cowboys with the white hats. Um, and the non-Jews were the bad guys the people deserving of God's wrath. Not only were these people Jewish, not only were they offspring of Abraham, but they were good Jews. They were in the synagogue on the Sabbath. They weren't like the ones who couldn't be bothered to get up and just stayed in bed. They weren't those faithless ones. 
In modern terms, we might say, yeah, they came from good families. They'd grown up in the church. They went to church every week. They gave their offering. They're the ones who didn't get into trouble with the big sins. They were good Christian people. Those were the kinds of people in the synagogue that day. And they were eager for the Messiah to come because they expected him to deal with those sinful people out there, to get rid of those heathen Romans who were oppressing them and filling their towns with all these godless images and, and practices, to bring judgment on those gays and those abortionists. They were wanting the Messiah to restore Israel to her deserved glory, to make them a glorious power like they had under David, you know, a world power, a major influence in their area. And in their minds, the Messiah was going to come and pat them on the head and say, ah, my good child, you've been faithful through the hard times. I've come now to rescue you and to give you the blessings you deserve for your faithfulness. That was, that was what they were expecting the Messiah to do. And here comes Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, which they thought was theirs to decide. They'd be the judge of that, not him. But in the midst of talking about being the Messiah, he turns and points the finger at them, these good Jews. And he implies that being a child of Abraham, being a good Jew, coming from a good Christian family, is no promise of God's favor. Jesus does this reminding them from kings, from the lives of the great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. The children of Israel had walked away from God and were pursuing Baal and Ashtoreth worship. And the Lord, as a judgment, sent Elijah to pray that it would not rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And wicked King Ahab put a bounty on Elijah's head to Go find that guy. I don't care where he is. Go find him. Bring him in. We're going to make him make it rain again. He is the reason for our problems. And God took Elijah to various places to provide for him, to hide him. And at the peak of the famine, God told Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So God sent Elijah to one of these hated heathen people in one of the surrounding nations. The Sidonians worshipped the goddess Ashtaroth, the, one of the gods that Israel was pursuing, had left Jehovah to pursue. But God apparently prepared this Sidonian widow's heart. She was about to use her last flour and her last oil to make a small loaf of bread for herself and her son before they starved to death. Because famine was there too. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days for many days. And Jesus said to these people in Nazareth, you know, there were a lot of widows starving in Israel at the time. There were plenty of children of Abraham, people who weren't worshiping Baal. After the Lord sent rain, he told Elijah that there were 7,000 people in Israel who hadn't bowed their knee to Baal. So there were still good Jews in Israel. 
But God found the faith he was looking for in a heathen foreigner. He chose to use a Gentile who had enough faith to trust him, a little seed of faith to offer her little bit of nothing to God in faith. And in turn, she received the blessing of provision for the prophet and for her household. Then Jesus jumped to the story of Naaman, who was the commander of the Syrian army, one of Israel's enemies, an ungodly man who contracted leprosy. And he was so desperate for a cure that he took the advice of his Hebrew slave girl, a girl that he'd probably captured on a raid in Israel. And he traveled to Israel, to an enemy country, to see the prophet Elisha, to ask for healing from God. And after a struggle, he finally humbled himself to wash in the Jordan River and be healed. And Jesus points out again, he said, there were lots of lepers in Israel, there always have been. And they were not healed. They weren't recipients of God's grace and mercy. Only this Gentile who came to God in faith and was healed. So the clear message here is it didn't matter whether or not a person was a child of Israel. What mattered was whether a person came to God humbly in faith. And most of the spiritually smug people in Israel were missing God. The Messiah was not coming to rescue the deserving Israelites from the evil Gentiles. The Messiah was coming to sinful Jews and sinful Gentiles alike. Jesus, or Paul says in Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the good Jews weren't getting a pat on the head they were called to recognize that they were hopelessly lost in the need of a savior too. God was looking for people who recognized their situation <laughs> as desperate, that there was nothing that they could do to help themselves, that they were down to their last handful of flour, their last drops of oil, and there was nothing more to be had. They, he's looking for people that recognize that no matter how good they look compared to the other people around them, no matter how religious their upbringing, no matter how many times they attend church each week, no matter how much they read their Bible, they can't possibly live up to God's righteous standard. And I'm not saying that any of those things are bad, they're all good, but it's not enough to deliver us from God's righteous wrath. Even with all those credentials, we're wretchedly sinful with no hope in ourselves, and there's nothing we can do to make up for our sin. Paul again in Romans says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, that would be the, the Israelite, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. To the one who comes by faith, the Gentile, to us. So God's beloved children are not Abraham's physical offspring. They're his spiritual ones. The ones who come to God by faith alone in the sacrifice of Jesus. The people of Nazareth didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to hear that they were poor and wretched and naked and in desperate need of a savior. It was a blow to their pride. And they wanted to keep thinking that they were okay because they're the children of Abraham after all. And they tried to keep the law at least. It's interesting to me that 
this section in Luke um, talks so much about synagogues. He opens this section with, and he, Jesus, taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he ends it 30 chapter, or 30 verses later, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And all in between, he talks about the synagogue. Jesus preached in the synagogue. The demon was delivered, or the demonic man, demon-possessed man was delivered in a synagogue. Jesus came from the synagogue to heal Peter's mother. Jesus was actively and deliberately revealing himself to religious people in synagogues. But he also warns later in Luke, in Luke 21, and they, people against the Christians, will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And John in Revelation, speaking to the church in Smyrna, says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but are not but are a synagogue of Satan. And to a church in Philadelphia, he speaks about those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, but are not, and are not, but lie. To me, the message is clear that just because somebody claims to be a good Jew and did all the good Jewish activities, including going to synagogue, didn't mean they were God's people. They weren't necessarily Abraham's true seed. So what if we replace the term synagogue with church and the term Jew with Christian? I mean, after all, Christianity arose out of Judaism. Many of the Christians in the first century were worshiping in the synagogue. So what if the verse read, the slander of those who say they are Christians but are not, but are a church of Satan? Or those of the church of Satan who say they are Christians but are and are not, but lie. So now I've gone from preaching to meddling. Um, but I think we need to hear this. That there are good Christians, quote unquote, good Christians, who are active in church, who are living a lie, who are deceiving themselves. If you come to Jesus thinking, you know, I'm pretty good. I, I, I have a lot to offer the Lord. And he's pretty lucky to have me on his team. And I've for sure been there, thinking, yeah, I'm a pretty good guy. Of course, God wants me on his side. If you think you're deserving of his love because you try to be good all your life and you go to church every week and you put an offering in the box, I'm afraid that you've bought into a lie. You're probably going to want to throw Jesus off a cliff but because he's going to tell you that's not enough. That's not good enough. All your good deeds are not enough. On the other hand, if you, if we come to Jesus empty-handed, poor, wretched, and naked, a hopeless sinner, he offers the free gift of righteousness before God, a, a gift received by faith. And it's not the good religious people who are the children of God. It's the ones who, regardless of their background, regardless of their past, who come to Jesus in faith, believing that his shed blood is sufficient to cover their mess, to allow them to stand before God covered in his righteousness. Those are the real messy but forgiven people of God. That's, that's who I am. I'm a hot mess, but I'm covered in the blood of Christ. 
the message of Luke is that Jesus is the real Messiah. He fulfills the prophecies. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's delivering people from oppression, from bondage to sin. He's opening spiritually blind eyes as well as physical ones. He's bringing the good news of hope to the spiritually poor. And he's proclaiming that we're in the time of the Lord's favor, a time when this gift of salvation is being offered to everyone, regardless of who we are, regardless of our past. But it's a gift that we receive by faith, not because we come with all our wonderful, good, filthy rag deeds in our hands. Let's not miss the favorable year of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you are the Messiah. Lord, you've made that so clear. Um, Lord, I thank you that you offer us deliverance from bondage to sin. Thank you for that gift. Lord, I pray that each of us would wrestle with whether we've really accepted that, whether we've really come to you empty and in desperate need of your salvation, or whether we come to you smugly thinking, God, we deserve this. Um, Lord, may we be humble. May we be broken before you, and may we receive your gift of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.